Good evening, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It's very good to be with all of you tonight. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure uh, being with you guys and having different connections through different people that are here. Um, people that I've known family members of in other places, people that I knew when I lived here in Nashville. Um, I appreciate that you guys are uh, okay with me coming down and doing this and that uh, I'm at a local congregation in Bowling Green with the elders that are okay with sharing me in that way once a month. And so this is a blessing to be able to think about God's Word together and to be doing this once a month uh, in this capacity with, on a Sunday night. In this lesson, I want us to consider a theme that runs through the Gospel of John. And probably for anybody here that studied the Gospel of John, you've noticed that this Gospel has very cryptic kind of statements. But there's not a lot of really big words that are hard to understand in the book. But the sentences and the phrases that are used have some kind of cryptic thing to them at times. And so maybe sometimes we seize on uh, the, the seven I am statements, and those are a little bit more clear and understandable, and the book is really known for the seven I am statements. What, maybe the seven signs that happen in the book, the turning the water to wine, and, and the first two signs are counted, and the rest of them are kind of like uh, hints that a rabbit is leaving on Easter, like you've got to find the eggs and everything throughout the book. Uh, and, and so the rest of them aren't really numbered. And we, we look at these really dynamic kind of stories in the book, and those are the things that are perhaps more concrete in the book. I think another thing throughout the book that's really concrete that for a long time I didn't value enough were the challenging questions that Jesus asks in the Gospel of John. And to be clear, in all of the Gospels, Jesus will ask challenging questions. But there's a lot of them that are unique to the Gospel of John. And if you have a red-letter Bible, where the direct speech of Jesus is in red letters, the first red letters that you're going to find in the Gospel of John is this question, what are you seeking? This is a really good question to ask ourselves. This is a good question to ask other people when we're trying to encourage each other spiritually. If you wanted to know somebody else, you could learn some things about their background, their college education, if they're not college educated, what they do for work, whatever. You could learn something about the country that they came from, that sort of thing. And you'd know some things about somebody. But if you really want to know somebody and you want to know yourself to the core, it would be the answer to this question. What is it that you're seeking? What is it that you're putting your energy and your time and your effort? What is it that you're leveraging your finances towards? What is it that you're seeking? I want to begin in this lesson by looking at the scene from which this question is asked. Look at John chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples... And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Try to imagine this scene here. John the Baptist is spending time with, and the text helps us see this, that John has his own disciples. There's other passages in the New Testament that teach that John had his own disciples. He's spending time with these people, and I imagine, are they walking down the road somewhere? Are they sitting under a tree or something like this? And then here comes Jesus walking by. And you can imagine the excitement that he has when he says, Behold, that's the Lamb of God. This is the guy that my mission is all about getting people connected with. And as soon as he draws this attention over to this Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, what happens to his two disciples? His two disciples leave him and they go towards John. Do you like the humility of John the Baptist? That he was okay losing his own followers if that meant that they were getting connected with the one that his whole mission was all about. By the way, the rest of this chapter, beginning in, in verse uh, 35, through the end of the chapter, is Jesus collecting his first five disciples. And it all gets kick-started by John doing what he does here. Now, try to imagine this then. You've got these two disciples that are coming towards Jesus. I imagine that they're following him on the road and Jesus like hears uh, the rocks kind of crunching under their feet or whatever. And he turns around and he asks them this question. What are you seeking? Do you find it that it's interesting that he asks that question? Not just generally. Hey, what's your life all about? Instead, he's asking this question specifically in the context of coming towards Jesus. Jesus doesn't immediately go, I'm so glad that you're coming towards me right now. You're showing a lot of great interest in spiritual things. He doesn't begin that way. He begins by saying, what is it that you're seeking in the context of grouping up around me? Why would that be a good question to ask? Because I think there are some people that might be interested in Jesus. They might have the appearance of being interested in Jesus. And their motive and their reason for it is something much less than what Jesus actually wants from them. By the way, if you ever want to talk to somebody about spiritual things and they start talking about how they're reading their Bible and how they're going to church now, this is a good question to ask people. Well, what is it that you're looking for as you're doing all of this? No, their answer is, we want to know where you're staying. Now, I'm going to come back to their answer towards the end of this sermon. But this is the, the, the scene from which I want to take this theme and show you how it telescopes through the Gospel of John. This question of what are you seeking becomes the control, in some ways, the or a controlling question in the Gospel of John. Uh, the word seek or seeks or seeking is used 29 times in the Gospel of John. And the, these words are used at critical moments. In, in John chapter 7, there's people that are seeking to kill Jesus. There's people that are seeking to arrest Jesus. When Jesus is in the garden after he's been raised from the dead, he asks Mary, uh, what is it that you're seeking? Because she, th she thinks he's the gardener and all this kind of, in that whole context of that passage. I want to look at the next time in the Gospel of John that this word is used, though. Look at John chapter 4. And this is where Jesus is talking with the woman at the well. And isn't it interesting that this woman at the well, her, one of her problems is 
She's been married a bunch of times. She's not been like she's not stayed, been with a, a true groom yet. How many how many men in the Old Testament, in one way or another, find their wife at a well? And here's Jesus at the well with this woman, and she's going to find out who her true groom is in this scene. We don't have time to unpack all of that, but I want to skip down to verses 21 to 24. Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me." The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In this scene, it's possible, is this woman asking about where the true place of worship is? Because just a few verses before this, Jesus says, go call your husband. And he's kind of uh, uh, opening up the sin of her life. And she, oh, I want to ask a deep theological question now to ignore the whole sin issue that he just brought up. Is she using this as a distraction? Maybe, I don't know. But she brings up this issue of where is it that you're supposed to worship, and right now Jerusalem is the place that you worship. Salvation comes from the Jews. We are right about worshiping in Jerusalem. But there's going to come this hour where it's not going to matter where you worship around the world. You don't have to go to some specific mountain or something like that. Because there's coming this time where all around the world people will be able to worship in spirit and in truth. But did you see where the word seek is used? In verse 23, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So it's not just in John chapter 1 that people are seeking things. We learn also that the Father is seeking certain things as well. When he looks down on earth and he considers the hearts of men, he's looking for certain kinds of people. One way that you can think about what's happening here is with radio frequencies. You know, right now in this room, there are radio frequencies coming through these walls. They're like hitting your head and all, like they're all over the place right now. And if you wanted to know how to tune into those, you'd need to get a receiver and then get, dial it into the right thing and then you'd be able to catch it. And, and make, perhaps, in like man, this is the way I think about this. That it's like God has these radio frequencies of looking for seekers. And there's only certain people whose hearts are tuned to what it is that the Father is looking for. And so when Jesus asks the question, what are you seeking in John chapter 1? It's as if he's saying, is your heart set to the right frequency? What is it that you really want me to do for you? Um, unfortunately, there's many people even in the Gospel of John, that are interested in seeking Jesus, but the radio frequencies don't match. And in this Gospel, Jesus will challenge people on what their true motives are. Go to one of the other times that we see this word being used. Look at John chapter 6. When Jesus has fed the group of people, and then they come back the next day wanting more bread that he had made, Look at John chapter 6, starting in verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're seeking him, that's cool. 
In verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Right, what is it that this crowd does in this text? It's the next day. They see that, that Jesus and his disciples have vacated the area, and they get into a boat, and I imagine that there's some rowing involved with this, and they row all the way to the other side. And the text says that they're seeking Jesus. You know, in any given local church, like everybody seems to know who is it that drives the furthest to be here. And we're always encouraged whenever that person comes. How many of you had to row a boat for four miles to get here? When I was growing up in Minnesota, I was cool enough to be in Boy Scouts, and one of the things that I did in Boy Scouts is I went to the Boundary Waters. If you've never seen pictures of the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, look it up. Don't do it right now, though. And it's just this beautiful place of all these, these lakes that get interrupted by other pieces of land, and you can go canoeing on them and then pick up your canoe and your gear and walk across part of those, the, the land and then get to the next uh, the, the next lake and it's a, it's one of the most beautiful places I, the first time I ever went we were about 200 yards away from the shore we had just put the boat in and I told the guy that was in, on the back part of the boat I said my arms are already sore and he goes we're only 200 we, have, we got to do this for 20 miles this week and I got a guy that's like weak and he can't. So notice these people are doing a lot of work to get to Jesus. And he doesn't go, I'm so happy you're here. Instead, the first thing that he starts doing is he's saying, you're, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs. But I thought that they saw the signs. They were the ones that saw him multiply the food. But he says to them, you didn't see the sign." Well, yeah, we did. We saw you multiply. We saw the sign. They didn't see the deeper meaning of it. You know uh, why the Gospel of John uses the word sign? <clears throat> a sign is something that signifies a deeper meaning. Imagine that I told you about some restaurant. And I said, this is the best restaurant that you could ever go to and have the food there. And then uh, you go check it out, but what you do is you go to the parking lot and you get out and you look at the sign. And then you get back in your car and you give me a call and you go, the way that they did those colors on that sign, that place was awesome. And I go, yeah, great. So what did you think about the food? Oh, what are you talking about? We didn't try the food. We saw the sign and how great that was. What's the purpose of a sign, even for a restaurant? To get you to the deeper thing of the food that's there. And Jesus is saying, you guys are just looking at the sign. You're not seeing what it signified, though. You're just coming back for more bread. You're not seeking me because you're spiritually perceptive to the things that I'm trying to do. Why were they ever separated to begin with, the crowd and Jesus? Look at verse 15. Go back a few verses. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king... Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know what's scary about that verse? If you are seeking Jesus for earthly purposes, 
You are the kind of person that Jesus withdraws from. The radio frequencies do not match. So what would be some examples today of crowding up around Jesus, of rowing a boat really far and being strenuous about that to crowd up around Jesus? What would be some wrong motives to do that that Jesus might not look at and go, wow, so happy that you're, that you're so interested in me? I'm going to give a couple examples of this, but let me preface this when I give these examples. I am not saying in these examples that I'm about to bring up that if you've ever been on the receiving end of any of these things, that it means that you have a bad heart. But I am saying if these are the main drivers of being interested in Jesus and Bible study and coming to church, you may want to reevaluate your motives. So here's one of them. Finances. You ever seen this happen before where somebody never comes to the assembly until they've got some kind of financial crisis? And then, then they start coming and they let people know their financial needs and then brethren uh, love people and so they give to that financial need and once that financial need is met, they kind of drop off the map again. What about people that come around for the social benefit? And by the way, again, is it good if you've been financially helped by brethren? Absolutely it is. But is that your driving reason for being interested in him? What about the social benefit of having friends? It's good to have Christian friends. Uh, Christians should be the closest friends that you have. But what if the only reason that you're ever interested in Jesus' things is because I just would like to have some friends that don't swear. I would like to have some friends that don't do really bad things. As far as my personal passion towards Jesus, that's kind of on the back burner, but I like having friends. Maybe you should reevaluate that. What really is it that you're seeking? Some people seek Jesus to add power to some other thing that they're more interested in. When, when Deuteronomy, or Exodus and Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments, when it says to not take the name of the Lord in vain, do you think part, one low-hanging fruit application of that is to not say things like, oh my God, in a, in a context where that's not appropriate? But the word take, the Hebrew word for take, means to carry something, like you're carrying a flag. Don't take, don't walk around with God's name slapping his name onto something that's not the thing that he came to do. I remember when I was in college, and I, t I had been a Christian for probably eight months or something like that, and I was taking a political science class. And the professor had a guest speaker that had come from Germany or something like that to speak to all of us. And he was talking about a, a certain political persuasion uh, called Marxism. And I was listening to what this guy had to say, and I raised my hand, and I, I, was just, I was getting exposed to all kinds of new ideas, and I had, didn't have any slant in why I asked the question, but I raised my hand and I said, so where did you get your ideas from? He said, from Jesus. Like, this is everything that Jesus was all about. Okay, uh, so you're really interested in the verses that you think you can twist to say that Jesus was some kind of political activist. Is that really what Jesus meant by those? Is that, are you seeking Jesus for the right reasons? Uh, I, I like to uh, read books. And uh, when I became a new Christian, I would 
uh, like I started, I found out eventually about Kindle books and digital books and everything. So I get a lot of books for free. And uh, there was one book that showed up one day that was titled, What Would Jesus Eat? I thought, oh, interesting. Like, it'll be a great study on Leviticus and the dietary laws and all. So I got the book, and then I started digitally thumbing through it, and the whole point of the book was how Jesus wouldn't have had GMO food. <laughs> Do you think that that's the point of any of the passages that, the guy was, that he was referencing? Why are you seeking to look at the... This, there's an even better one. I got another Kindle book. And this one was definitely free. I wouldn't have paid for this one. But it's titled, The Doctrine of the Shape of the Earth. And it's about how the earth is flat. And how the Bible proves that the earth is flat. You want to know what one of the arguments was? You know you want to know. One of the arguments was that the Bible teaches that we're supposed to walk in straight paths of righteousness. If the earth were round... There would be no such thing as a straight path. Na na na. And so I got you with that one. Do you, do you think that guy, whoever wrote that book, do you think he was ever passionate about those kinds of verses until he started thinking about the doctrine of the shape of the earth? Why is it that you're looking at these passages? What are you trying to do with these different passages? Is it really because you want to seek and know God? Or is it that you have some other agenda that you want to try to prove or add power to? What is it that you're seeking? Um, we don't have time to tease all of this out. But one of the questions that people have had for a long time is why are there so many Christian denominations? Christian denominations. Last time I checked, over 35,000. One of the reasons for that is that man comes with things that they would like, and then they slap Jesus' name on it, not having sought Jesus for who he really was. And so you got some people that are all about this thing and will slap his name on it, and other people that are all about this other thing and will slap his name on it, and then we'll carve up Jesus and make him in the image that we would like him to be for our purposes. Go back to John chapter 1. What are the right reasons for seeking Jesus? What is the frequency that Jesus is looking for in us? There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And I've, I've read this before. I've not like, gone through every chapter of the Bible to verify this, but it seems accurate. That out of all the chapters in the Bible, John chapter 1 gives us the most descriptions of Jesus. And all throughout John chapter 1, it's ironic to me, that the first question Jesus asks is, what are you seeking? And John chapter 1 unravels this beautiful carpet showing you what it is that you ought to be seeking. With all these descriptions of who he is. When the disciples say to Jesus, where are you staying? It's four o'clock in the afternoon. Where are you staying? I think the reason that they say that is because a roadside conversation isn't enough. We want you. We've been following John the Baptist. He's been telling us about your coming. We don't just want you to make us some bread really quick. We want you, and we want to stay where you are. And to such people, Jesus says in John chapter 1, come and you will see. Come and I will show you. But to those who want to misuse Jesus, he withdraws from them. 
What are the descriptions of Jesus in John chapter 1? What is it in John chapter 1 that this gospel opens up by saying that says, are you seeking Jesus for these things? Notice the first description of Jesus in John chapter 1. We're just going to machine gun through some of these from John chapter 1 and just ask ourselves, is this why we're seeking Jesus? The first description of Jesus in the gospel of John is that he's described as the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the, it famously says that the Word became flesh. Have you ever looked at these passages and wondered, why is it that John uses the word, Word? Why describe somebody as being the Word? Why do you speak words? You speak words so that you can be, make yourself known to people. Nobody really knows what you're thinking if you don't ever say anything. And so how is it that God will make himself known in the world, but it's through the word, it's through Jesus. He's the express representation of who God is. I remember one time when I was in California, I was studying the Bible with somebody who had just gotten out of prison. He had been in prison for 11 years because he was illegally selling marijuana. <clears throat> and um, when we first started studying, he knew nothing about God, nothing about the Bible. And one of the things that frustrated him was that there were so many different religions that had different ideas of who God is. And he just wanted to understand who God is. There's all kinds of writings throughout history, Homer's Odyssey. you got all these different pictures in antiquity of a lot of the gods being pictured as people that were sexually promiscuous and they were drunkards. And that's really just man putting his own understanding of himself onto a god that would also give him permission to do these kinds of things. But then you had other religious writings that said, well, we think God is like this. And this guy was frustrated and he said, I just want to know what God is like. And we started studying the Gospel of John and when we explained to him what it meant that Jesus is the Word, that when you see the righteous anger Jesus has, that's showing you the righteous anger of God. When you see the way that Jesus loved other people, that's showing you the way that God loves. All of these kinds of things. Are you seeking Jesus because you want to know God? Well, He's the Word. And if that's not what you're interested in, then you're seeking him for the wrong reason. That's the first description. The next description, in John chapter 1, verse 9, he's described as not just the light, but the true light. Uh, there's a lot of things to think about with light. Uh, <clears throat> maybe it means that without light, there would be no life, and he's the, the light was the life of men, things like that, that the text says. Um, if the sun just totally stopped working, all vegetation would die, we would all die, uh, it would be no good and all that kind of thing. So maybe it's saying that Jesus being the true light means that apart from him, there's no th such thing as life. You want spiritual life? Maybe that's part of the question. But maybe another part of the question is that light exposes things. You ever been in a room before where uh, the, the, sh the uh, what are those things called that leave the sun out? Blinds, when the blind, thank you. When the blinds are closed and it's like you open the blinds and you were looking like throughout the room and the room seemed pretty clean and everything, but you open the blinds and you see all the dust flying in the air. Like, whoa, I didn't know that it was like this gross in here, that kind of thing. Are you seeking Jesus because you want the dust of your heart to be exposed? 
I find it interesting that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where, where Paul tells Timothy that you've got to preach the word in season and out of season, and he says, there is coming a time where people will not endure sound doctrine. Do you know what that means about sound doctrine? It's something that you have to endure. It's something that's heavy. It's something that keeps exposing darkness in your life. Are you seeking after Jesus because you want those things exposed so that you can become more pure? Uh, by the way, when it says that he is the true light, the implication in that is that there are such things as false lights. And if I can just take a brief aside for a moment, one of the concerns that I have right now for younger Christians, like people in my age category, is I, I, I've heard a lot of folks bemoan the older generation of Christians in the ugly ways that they fought over different things that we never were around to see, and so we better not have chronological snobbery towards things that we were never even around for to begin with. But uh, there's this pervasive attitude that the old generation never talked about heaven and love and, th and grace, and so they were really in the dark, and they just didn't understand that stuff. And so the, the, the pendulum swings... And then my generation just wants to talk about love and grace and heaven, but never God's wrath. When this text says the true light, I think one application of that idea would be that in any given generation, there might be things that seem like light, but really what it could be is emphasizing something that another generation may be neglected to the neglect of the thing that you think they emphasized. Did all that make sense? True light means that you want all of it, and you're not just going to take part of it to the neglect of other parts. Jesus is the true light. Are you seeking him because of that? The next one is that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and that description of him is used a couple times. Uh, this calls to mind the book of Exodus, and uh, it's, uh, this is the Jewish version of the 4th of July. Interesting that when before the tenth plague happened, the death of the firstborn, remember what the ninth plague was? Three days of darkness. And then three days of darkness, you get the death of Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, it was three hours of darkness, followed then by the death of the, the, the Lamb of God. When the Passover happened, this is where God took them out of slavery, and he actually commanded them to rest one day out of the week unless it was a high Sabbath day for their seven feasts that they had during the year. Are you seeking Jesus because you know that you've got life-enslaving sins, that you plan your schedule around, that you don't want to tell anybody else about, but you're going and looking things up online that you ought not look up and you can't seem to control yourself about those sorts of things? Are you coming here just to have your toes stepped on so that you can feel like you're purged of sin that you're going to go ahead and commit the next week again? Or is it really because you want a new lifestyle where you've been brought out of that? Because Jesus can teach you how to do that. It's going to take discipline, but it's also going to take you meditating on what he's done for you for that to be overcome. We don't have time to spell all of that out. But are you coming to him because you want your life-enslaving sins gone? Uh, you know, want to know what the most, at least according to some psychologists, the most addictive um, emotion is? Is anger. You want to get that out of your life? Notice the next one. Jesus is called rabbi. 
in chapter 1, verse 38. Rabbi means my master, my instructor, things like that. One of the things that I've been, uh, I've become more aware of, I guess, it's not something I've really paid a lot of attention to until other people have pointed these things out to me, is there's a, a lot of motivational speakers that sometimes even brethren really like to listen to. And one of the ways that you know when it's a motivational speaker is when they talk in a really like upbeat kind of way and they say, all of your problems in life, the answers to those problems are within you already. You just have to believe in yourself. Oh, I feel so good listening to this guy. You realize how counter that is to what the Bible teaches? Self-help. I am my own problem. How am I going to help myself? The Bible teaches that if you want to learn and you want instruction, it's not going to come from within you. It's going to come from your rabbi who is exterior to you that will teach things that need to become part of you. Maybe one way that you can think about this. And I don't know how old everybody is here, but you'll get the point regardless. When you were 20... Did you look back at your 15-year-old self and go, when I was 15, I was such a fool. And then when you turned 30, you look at your 25-year-old self and go, when I was 25, I was such a fool. This would mean that if you lived till you were 90, you would look back at your 80-year-old self and say, when I was 80, I was such a fool. When I was in California, there was an old lady at the church there named Ann Strutz. I did a gospel meeting there a few months ago. She had recently turned 104. She didn't look a day past 102, though. (laughs) And she she would tell you that when she was 95, she was such a fool. Do you know what that means? There's a sense in which at every age of your life, you're a fool. And that you always need some kind of rabbi to be instructing you on things. Do you really believe that? The next description is that Jesus is the king. And there's several descriptions in John chapter 1 that all have this same meaning. He's called Son of God in verses 34 and 49. He's called the King of Israel in verse 49. He's called the Messiah in verse 41. I'm not going to get into the details of all of those, but all of those terms relate to him being the king. Obviously, King of Israel is one of them. Messiah means uh, anointed one. Kings were anointed in the Old Testament. Um, Uh, So anyway, so you got these pictures of Jesus being like the divine God, king, that sort of thing. In the first century, do you know how, uh, what the word gospel meant in the first century? Has Barry talked about this with you guys? Euangelion and the way that the word gospel was used in the first century. That whenever there would be a new king, the Roman Empire would send out people on horses called apostles And they would go tell everybody, euangelion, good news, good news. There's a new king, and guess what this new king is going to do for us? He's going to lower the taxes, and he's going to defeat the enemies, and he's going to usher in greater peace to our nation. And then that emperor would stink just like the last one, and then somehow people would believe that the next time riders on horses were sent out, they would say, this is really going to be where it all changes. And then it never did. Does that sound like the United States every four years, something like that? And we put all our, all our hope in earthly princes and earthly leaders. And then in this historical context, G, the Bible says that this is the gospel of Jesus. 
This is the king that you've always wanted. This is the king that cannot be bought and sold by anybody. He's not ever doing shady deals with other people. He's always doing the right thing. He's never going to unjustly punish somebody. He's never going to take somebody who should be punished and let them go free, all that sort of thing. Here's the leader that you've always wanted. Are you seeking Jesus because you want to be part of his kingdom? Because part of him being the king means that you're going to submit to him. means that you have a new purpose. Do you want Jesus to define your purpose in life? Or do you want Jesus to be an add-on, but then those other things in my life are really my greatest passion? If Jesus is the king, this means that just as gravity is true, you're going to have to answer to him one day. And if you really believe that he's the king, that everybody will have to answer to that means that my new identity has become I'm a servant of the king. Now, you might look at these descriptions of Jesus and ask yourself, well, why would anybody seek Jesus for earthly reasons when he wants to do all of these deeper, more significant things in our life? When we want to seek Jesus for some earthly reason, our problem is that we're not thinking deeply enough. We're setting our sights way too low on what it is that God actually came to do for us. And maybe that's one of the reasons that we don't seek him for the right reason. But I got an idea on this. The last description, oh, sorry, son of man is another description of him being king. Uh, but the last description of Jesus that we're talking about in John chapter 1 is that Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says about that, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was a city that was despised. This was a city that no rabbis wrote about. Uh, this was a city that was not significant at all. There's a tension that exists in the Gospel of John where there's people that believe in Jesus, but for fear of being kicked out of the synagogue. John chapter 9 brings that up. John chapter 12 brings that up. We don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. We don't want to align ourselves with the Jesus of Nazareth. Because this town is insignificant. This place is where losers are from. And if I align myself with Him, I will never have earthly sophistication. Maybe one way to think about that Imagine going back to a college setting and uh, you walk up to some students that are sophisticated because they're talking about Plato and Aristotle and Euripides and all these people that are cool. And you go up to them and go, hey guys, I kind of like Jesus. And everybody thinks you're just the coolest person ever, right? No, not at all. You know why a lot of folks don't want to seek Jesus for the right reasons? and don't want to seek Jesus wholly, is because you're going to align yourself by earthly standards with a loser who came from Nazareth. So well, you can have all of these great blessings, there's the obstacle to be overcome, and the obstacle is, do I care more what people think about me or what God thinks about me? What is it really that I'm seeking? Am I allowing the voice of man to crowd out my desire to fully seek Jesus with everything that I have? If the first question that Jesus asks in the Gospel of John is, what are you seeking? Do you know what one of his last questions in the Gospel is? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Very similar question. What are you seeking? 
Do you love Jesus? Do you seek him with your whole heart? Do you seek him for the reasons and the same radio frequency that he's looking for? And if you do, he says, come and see. And if you don't, he withdraws from you. If there's anybody here tonight that needs to get their life right with God, this is an opportunity to do that. We're about to have a song of of, uh, encouragement, a song that's meant to invite people either to come forward while we're singing, to ask for the prayers of the congregation, or if, uh, if you don't feel as bold to do that, please don't leave here without talking to somebody. This room is filled with people that would love you and support you. If there's anything that anybody here can do for you, in one way or another, make that need known while we stand and while we sing.